Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning. I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts in the New Testament. If you uh, don't know where it is, it is not illegal to look in your table of contents. God allows that. Acts chapter 18. This is your first Sunday here. We're studying through the book of Acts, which means we're going story by story through it, trying to understand what's happening here. And we are at Acts 18, beginning at verse 18, and we'll finish the chapter. As you're turning there, I was thinking about the fact that today is Palm Sunday, and it is a great day, and it's a day that we celebrate Christ entering into Jerusalem, and they laid down the palm branches and their jackets, and, uh, and they were celebrating him as the king. Of course, they had no idea what they were doing when they did that. They, they were laying these things down, but they didn't under, really understand who he was. But then Jesus defined himself when he walked, came in and, and he cleansed the temple. And a few weeks ago we looked at this when he cleansed the temple and he said, my house will be a house of prayer. And he's quoting from Isaiah 56. And in that, in that passage in Isaiah, God says that if anybody from any nation wants to come and worship me, they're welcome. That I've got a space in my temple for them. For my house will be a house of prayer. Palm Sunday is the celebration of Christ entering in Jerusalem to die for the nations, to give his life for everybody, so that everybody from every tribe and tongue can come and worship him. Everybody has a seat at the table, not because of what they've done, not because of they've earned it, but because of what Christ has done. He died to cover our sin. He died to take away our shame. He, he died to remove the guilt so we're no longer needing to be defined by our past or our parents or our problems. We are now defined by the love of Christ. And he came in to cleanse the temple and say, listen, that man, everybody's got room at my table. Welcome, nations. You're all welcome. And, and today we're looking at Acts 18. I can't really think of anything better to study on Palm Sunday than this because this is the actual practical application. Paul is going out and bringing and gathering the people in. Gathering the ones in that God has died for, that Christ has died for. And so we're going to look this morning at Acts 18. And we're going to look at uh, verses 18 through 28. I'd like to read that passage for us this morning. And then we'll get into it. Follow along as I read Acts 18, starting at verse 18. It says, After this Paul stayed many days longer... And then he took leave of the brothers and had set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he went with them into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that, the Christ, that Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for a glorious morning to sing your praises, to hear of your work in India, to celebrate your glorious work of uniting all things in Christ. Thank you that we get to celebrate this this morning. God, may our eyes be open to see this text. May it encourage us. May these words just bless us. May we see the world differently as a result of, of just studying the Bible today. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You know, several years ago, we uh, had a, a, a study of the book of Acts. We've had this a few times at the church where we studied the book of Acts together and we gathered people to study the missionary work of Paul through the book of Acts. And uh, in, one of these, in one of these studies, one time I was asked a question by somebody and it was one of those questions that really hit me hard. Somebody had, had raised their hand and said, you know, i got a question for you. And, and this question came out of the fact that we were looking at all the movement of Paul. He just would go to a place and go to another place and go to another place. And he would just kind of kept moving around. He didn't seem real stable in terms of staying in a place. And, and, uh, and we were discussing this element of Paul. And, uh, and this person raised their hand. They said, I have a question for you. How do you think the church would be different if every leadership team was required by God to leave a church after five years of being there, how do you think they would do, do their job differently? If every leadership team knew that they were going to be moved and have to move somewhere and go somewhere else, how would they do their job differently in shepherding the church? If you only had five years and you were going to take off. That was one of those questions that really struck me. Because I started thinking about the fact that, that you would do things differently if you knew you only had five years somewhere. And I started thinking about that, and I started thinking, that's interesting. We began to, on the basis of that question, really look at the life of Paul. And we started realizing Paul had a very unique way of doing ministry. In fact... He had a certain set of core values that drove him to move and to keep moving and to go from one city and preach the gospel and go to another city and preach the gospel, go to another city and preach the gospel. And, and as we began to un unpack this, it really started to impact me. This was one of the big turning points in my life about six years ago when, when I had this conversation. And I started observing that there were kind of three values that Paul had. And you could see them in the book of Acts. And in fact, you could probably figure out by looking at the title of the sermon what the three values are, because it's right there in your bulletin. There are three values that he had. The first value that Paul had is he had a value, what we'll just call the value of mission. He understood something. He understood that here's what's going on in the world. God created this world. He made it. And the world rebelled against him. 
But one of the great things about God is he's filled with such love that he's going to redeem this world. And by redeeming this world, what he's going to do is he establishes Jesus as Savior and judge over the world. And all things in the world are being united in Jesus. That's the mission. The mission of the church is that God is is, is uniting everything in Jesus. And, And so the church exists to tell the world that God has made a way for us to be united back to him and to be under his rule and reign forever. And it's wonderful and it's glorious. And the nations need to hear this. Everyone needs to hear this. And that when, when, when God touches you with his love and redeems your heart, he calls you into this great work of letting everybody know the glorious truth about Jesus. That was a driving passion for Paul, which means he had a second core value, movement. Which means then, if this is really what God is doing, uniting the whole world in Jesus, right? Massively big thought. If he's uniting everything in Jesus, then we got to let the whole world know. Everybody needs to know this. And so now you've got this movement going on. Which means that our church doesn't exist, you've heard me say this a lot, to build a little commune until the rapture, right? We're not just hanging out here, hiding out, afraid of the world. We stand here boldly and we tell people, you can be reconciled to God. And not only that, not only can you, everyone can. And we're part of this work of God doing this, which means people go, people move. Andrew goes to, to uh, India, and teams go to Canada, and, and some of you are going to move somewhere else in the United States at some point in your life. God's going to be moving us around so that we would shine this light because God is about movement and expansion. He's not a static God. He's a dynamic God. He's moving. It's a core value of Paul, which means then he's got a third core value, multiplication. If it's about movement then, that means then the, 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 the things need to be passed on. If someone's taken a step away, then someone's got to receive the baton. And I like to say it this way. You're either handing the baton of ministry to someone or you're receiving it from somebody, but this is what needs to be happening. And this is the element that ties us back to that question. If every leadership team was required by God to move every five years, then you'd be passing the ministry on constantly. You'd be handing it off to someone else. And that's one of the values of Paul. Recognizing that the coolest, I think, one of the coolest things about God is this. You can be very, feel very far away from God. You can feel as if you've got no seat at the table, no place in the kingdom, that everyone else is more spiritual than you, that everyone else is better than you, that, you know, you can feel that way. And when God redeems you, he says, not only am I going to save you, you're not just going to be this side little, you know, person in the kingdom that, that gets bass, pipe, bypassed, like, oh, you have no place here. He says, man, you not only are saved, you get a place of service, and you get a seat at the table, and you get to be part of what God is doing. And multiplication is saying, I'm passing this on because if you are in Christ, you have a reason for being here. If you're breathing, you have a reason. And the only time that your purpose in life is over is when I'm doing your funeral. That's it. Other than that, you have a reason to be here. Isn't that good news? There's some amens out there, right? I heard a few. But that's good news. This is what Paul is about. And this is what Acts 18 is about. Acts 18 is this kind of stuff going on. It's mission, it's movement, it's multiplication. You're going to see this in this text today. And I want you to see it 
Because I think it's important for us in the state of where our church is at. We've got some movement going on. We've got all the craziness that comes from movement. Everything gets disrupted and, 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 and you feel like everything's kind of going out of control sometimes. And sometimes you need to recognize, no, God's the one who designs movement. Which means that if you see this, it's a good thing. And I want us to embrace that good today. I want us to be encouraged. I think this is a timely passage, not only for Palm Sunday, I think it's a timely passage for our church, and I I hope it encourages you. So let's look at it here. Our first point here is that mission means movement. Let's look here at verse 18. Notice what it says. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So now, this is your first Sunday here. You have no idea what this passage means, right? You look at what is going on here. So here's what's going on. Paul's in a city called Corinth. He spent a year and a half there telling people about Jesus, establishing a church. God had given him divine protection while he was there. And so this church was able to form without him dying, because everywhere Paul went, people wanted to kill him. And so, but he gets this protection. At one point in time, the, the Jewish leadership that were against Paul, they had formed this band to make Christianity illegal in Corinth, and they brought it before the governor. The governor said, I'm not listening to this. This is a petty squabble. I'm done with you. And, of course, that band of Jewish leaders then beat up their leader in front of the, the, the judge, and then that guy ends up becoming a Christian through this process. And and Paul continues on establishing the church. Now, after the court case happened, after the crazy court case happened, verse 18 picks up, after this. That's what the after this is, after the court case. After the court case, Paul stayed a few days longer. And then he left. He took off from Corinth. Now, you think, why would he take off from Corinth, man? He's got divine protection. He's got a great team there. He's got his team with him. He's got Priscilla and Aquila, this, this couple that he met, that are just dynamic people. And, uh, and, and, and he's able to do his ministry. He's in Europe. He's where God wants him to be. And yet, he wants to go. And so he takes off. And not only does he take off, he takes the wonder couple with him. Priscilla and Aquila, right? They're like the great couple. They're tent makers, but man, these guys are incredible people. And it says, though, that he take, well, first of all, you think about Corinth going, why, Paul, okay, you can leave, but why are you taking them with us, with you? Leave them here. But mission means movement, and, and God has a plan for this, so they're going. Now, it's, there's a little strange little section here that a lot of people wonder, what does it mean? It says, at Centuria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. A lot of people wonder what that means. First of all, Centuria, you, you Corinth... Uh, there's a, the port town that you would have to, if you were in Corinth and you were going to set sail to go back to uh, Turkey, you would take off from a town called Centuria. So this is the little town kind of real close to Corinth. And Paul goes into this town and right before he leaves, he cuts his hair because he's under a vow. And you say, what does that mean? Well, Luke doesn't really want us to know a whole lot about this other than it's, it's probably the reason why he's leaving. Now, let me explain this to you. I think what you got Paul doing here is, I think he took a vow called the Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow. You can read about a Nazarite vow in Numbers 6, 1 through 9. 
Number six, one through nine, tells you about the Nazarite vow. I'll just explain it to you simply. Uh, Nazarite vow has nothing to do with like uh, the city of Nazareth or anything like that. It's from the Hebrew word nazir. Nazir means holy. It means holy. If you take a Nazarite vow, what you're saying is that you are setting yourself apart to be holy. Now, what does that mean? It means that basically, uh, you know, under that law, no drinking, no having fun, and no cutting your hair. Okay? And, and that was, you're allowed to grow your hair. Okay, now when I was a kid, like, long hair was of the devil, and I just really loved that passage about the Nazarite vow. I thought it was so cool. Look at this, man. God wants people to grow their hair. In fact, you're holy if you grow your hair. But that didn't work, and God's taking care of this for me, so I can't do a Nazarite vow anymore. <laughs> it just grows out <laughs> in the sink. Um, I lost my place, didn't I? <laughs> Get a little easily distracted every now and again. The thinning hair thing's very emotional for me. So. <laughs> so here's a Nazarite vow. You don't cut your hair, and you basically stay completely devoted to God. Now, why would Paul do this? People wonder why he did this. No one really knows why. We could speculate that maybe God had given him this divine protection, and he wanted to use it completely. God had said, hey, I'm not going to let anybody kill you there in Corinth. And, and so maybe he just said, I want to be all in. But, but basically what he did is he went through this process of, not cutting his hair, till the end of the vow. And according to number six, you then cut your hair and you bring your hair to Jerusalem. And, and, and then you put it on the fire and it burns up and, and it basically signifies the end of the vow. It's possible that Paul put himself under this vow while he was in Corinth and, and decided that until for a certain period of time, he would, he would do this until he... Uh, Felt that God wanted him to move on. Then he cut his hair. Now he's got to go back to Jerusalem. And that's what this whole text is really driving Paul towards. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. You'll see this in the text. I'll show it to you. And so now he's going to go. But what does he do? He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. This couple, Priscilla's the woman, Aquila's the man. They are an incredible couple. When Paul is in Corinth, he writes a letter to the Romans. That's when the letter to Romans was written, when he was here on the second missionary journey. And when he writes that letter to the Romans, Priscilla and Aquila had made their way up to Rome for a little season because they used to live there. And Paul actually greets them in the letter. We talk, I referenced this last week. He said to them in, in Romans 16, he, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. And he says, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their, their, their own necks for me and for the Gentiles, he says. They put their life on the line. They, these, that's why I call them the wonder couple. These, they, they run this business, but man, they are all in for the gospel. And so he takes them with. So now if you look at the first part of verse 19 now, Paul is leaving Corinth. He's going back. Basically, think about it. If you can think of a map in your head, he's going from uh, around the area of Greece, sailing all the way going to Turkey. Now he's sailing back to Turkey. Verse 19, it says, and they came to Ephesus. That's in modern-day Turkey. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. The them is Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves the couple there. Now, before Paul goes, there's something that he does. But what I want you to notice, though, what you have to catch here out of verse 19, is that he leaves them there. This is the multiplication side of ministry beginning to take place. As movement goes on, he's got to leave this couple there, and he's going to leave them there. Business, men and women, right? They own a business. They're leather workers, but they're all in for the kingdom. Paul leaves them in Ephesus. 
There's something else I want to point out to you that I think is very interesting. The first time we meet this couple, Luke introduces them to us the way you would normally do that. Aquila and Priscilla. In that day, the man would have been referenced first. Aquila, then Priscilla. After Luke introduces them to us, the rest of the time, they're known as Priscilla and Aquila, right? That's how you know them. Priscilla, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know them as Priscilla and Aquila. The woman's name first. That is like really dramatically wild, and some people would call Luke a liberal in that day because he named the woman first. No one knows why she's named first other than she must be doing something incredible to get top billing. We don't know what it is. But you know Luke, Luke is like very much, in, when a woman gets saved, he likes to point it out. And, 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 and he's the one who starts putting them out there. And then Paul even references them that way when he writes his letter in Romans. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. For years, I could never figure out which one was the guy or the girl. <laughs> you know? It's an interesting thing, other than this couple is all in. Because everybody has a seat at the table in the kingdom of God. Everybody has a part to play. If you're breathing, you have a reason for being here. If you're a man, if you're a woman, no matter the color of your skin, whatever it is, no matter your past, if you are here, God has a purpose for you. Paul makes that point, and, and Luke makes that point over and over and over again. You have a reason. Now look, at before Paul leaves, I want you to notice what happens. Let's pick up the rest of verse 19. It says, But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews... And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Okay, so here's what happens. Before Paul leaves, he's got to catch another ship. And while he's waiting for that ship, he's goes into the synagogue, which is what he would always do, right? He would go in. He would find people who had some understanding of the Bible and begin to tell them about Jesus. And notice what happens in Ephesus. Wide open door. Wide open door. This is what Paul wanted before he went to Europe. He wanted to stay in this region. And now he has a wide open door. And not only is it wide open, the people are saying, stay, stay, stay. Keep telling us about Jesus. But he says, no, I got to go. But if God grants it, I'll come back. And so he takes off. And he goes to Syria. That's the landing port there in the Middle East. And notice what it says there at the end of verse 22. And he went up and greeted the church. Anytime you read they went up, it always, in the Bible, it means they're going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was at the top of a hill. And so the reference of going up always means they went to Jerusalem. Going down means you left Jerusalem. So he goes up, goes to the top, goes to Jerusalem. But instead of bringing, I think he's bringing his hair to the church. I don't think he's bringing it to the temple which would probably be a weird offering. In comes bald Paul with a pile of hair. Hey, guys, year and a half's worth of growth. Here it is. Vow is done. Yeah, thanks, Paul. <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe just some shekels in the offering plate would have been better, but uh, we'll take it. But he greets the church there. Then he goes down. Even though Antioch is north of Jerusalem, he goes down the hill into Antioch. That's the church that sent him. So he's at his sending church now. Okay, very interesting Notice that the mission of the kingdom means movement. It means movement. People going places. Priscilla and Aquila going places. Everybody's going places. Stuff's happening. It's not static. 
Now, now we're going to see why the movement is necessary because movement means multiplication. This kind of movement brings with it multiplication. So let's look now at our second point here. Look at verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Fergia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul is basically going back to the churches that, 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 that were started when, on his first missionary journey, and he's building them up. Strengthening, equipping means he's taking burdens from them and teaching them because it's, churches are hard and churches have struggles and there's sin everywhere. And, and he's going back and making sure the churches are established. Now Luke just wants us to see that casually. And so he just basically throws that out to us. He says, okay, he's in, he's in Antioch, he's sending church, and now he starts his third missionary journey, and he's going back and dealing with the churches that he went to, was a part of uh, starting on his first journey. But what Luke wants us to see is what's going on in Ephesus. And so, you know, this would be that moment in the story if it were a movie. Meanwhile, back in Ephesus is basically how verse 24 would go. Notice what happens in Ephesus, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, so here's where Apollos enters into the equation. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know Paul says... He says, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos. That's this guy. This is the Apollos. Okay. Here's what happens. Priscilla and Aquila are hanging out in Ephesus. Paul is in Antioch and then cycling back around up into you know, north of Ephesus and doing his third missionary journey. This couple is there, and all of a sudden, on the scene, shows up this guy named Apollos. Apollos is from Alexandria. Alexandria is a... a a city established by Alexander the Great in Egypt. And, uh, and it was the seat of Greek learning. That's why it was called Alexandria. If you know about the, you know, when Alexander the Great was conquering the known world at that point, he was bringing Greek culture with him everywhere he went. The big term they use is Hellenization. It means that he's bringing all this Greek culture with him. And everywhere he went, he, he brought the Greek language, Greek book, Greek literature. And then he established a university and a library in Alexandria. Named it after himself, Alexandria. And this is the city now where if you want to be steeped in, in Greek culture, Greek writing, Greek philosophy, this was the place to be. So this guy, Apollos, grew up in Alexandria. He's a Jewish man. And we get kind of the picture that, that he's been raised in this environment. And we learn some things about him. Notice what it says. First, that he's an eloquent man. It means that he has the capacity to speak in a way that holds people's attention. Public speaking is different than public teaching. If this were like a, a lecture in a classroom, that's a different delivery system than what's going on right now. What's going on right now is, is a form of what we'd call public speaking or preaching which is the idea that, that you're trying to hold one continuous thought for 40 minutes without losing people. Or, in my case, losing myself, because you know how distracted I get. Okay? And he has the capacity to do this. He can stand in front of a crowd and talk for an hour, and people's attention are, are held for that time. He has that skill. 
That's what it means. He's eloquent. That would have been one of the skills he would have been taught in Alexandria. One of the, the, the core values of the ancient Greek system was the capacity to speak publicly for long periods of time, holding people's attention. If you go to seminary, they have a class called homiletics, how to stand up in front of a room full of people and hold their attention. I need to go back and revisit some of that for myself because it's helpful. But he had that skill. Notice what else it says. He's competent in the scriptures. I don't know if that's an insult or not, right? You're competent, right? But what it really means is not really an insult, right? It sounds that way to us, but it's not that. It's, not that, it's that he understood the point of the Bible. That's what it means. He understood the point of it. Now, in this case, it's the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. But he understands the point, is what it says. Notice what else it says. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. That's building on it. He understands what God's doing in the world. He's fervent in spirit, which means he's got a little fire to him. So when he stands up, he's bold and confident. He's able to speak with, with passion. And notice, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He understood that a Messiah was coming, but he had one glaring error. One big problem. He only knew of the baptism of John. What does that mean? That's Luke's simple way of saying the only thing that he understood was that that, that, that Jesus was coming. He didn't understand Jesus had already come. Remember John's message, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he's saying. When he would stand up and preach, he would preach as if Jesus hadn't come yet. So he'd be up there saying, repent, man. One's coming, one's coming, one's coming. But he was bold about it and he was accurate. He just had no idea Jesus came. So what happens? <clears throat> he starts to teach. Notice verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You can imagine that. They're in the, I'm just picturing this in my head. This probably is not what happened at all. But this is how I see it. He's standing up saying, one is coming, one is coming. You must repent, one is coming. And uh, Priscilla's like nudging Aquila. Hey, are you going to say something to him? <laughs> you know, that's wrong what he's saying. I know, just, just relax, dear. No, you need to say something to him now. Right? This is how I'm envisioning this. And because Priscilla, Priscilla's name's first, she makes the beeline to him. That's my opinion. That's why I heard her name first. Hey, do you know something? Jesus already came. You missed it. He, you didn't miss it. It's, it's here. It's, it's come. And I could see him going, what are you talking about? Come on. Come on over to our house for lunch. We need to explain to you some things. You've missed some facts. This is how I envision this. Who knows? Probably didn't happen that way at all. But they explained to him the full story. Now, here is something that I find really cool. This is, this is amazing if you think about this. Let's put all the pieces together of this story. Paul is in Asia. He wants to stay there. God says, no, you've got to go to Europe. So he takes him over to Europe. And then he's in one city gets people mad, they try to kill him, he's got to escape, goes to another city, people are mad, they're trying to kill him, and so he has to escape, he goes to another city, he preaches, no, a couple of converts, nothing really happens, he shows up in Corinth, and he meets this couple, and this couple had been driven out of, out of uh, Rome, because of Claudius the emperor, didn't want him there anymore, drove them out, drove them into Corinth, they happen to be tent makers, Paul's out of money, Paul's a tent maker, so Paul gets a job with them, meets this couple, 
And the next thing you know, some incredible ministry starts to happen in Corinth. So much so that Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for the gospel and to save Paul's life. We don't know what, what it was. A team forms. And suddenly this team leaves Corinth and with a big hole because three really powerful workers are taken off. More than that, the rest of Paul's team's taken off with them. And all of a sudden, they're back over here in Ephesus. No church is there in Ephesus, but one is starting to form, and Paul takes off. And now this couple is shepherding this forming church. This church that's starting is being shepherded by this couple. Next generation work going on. Right? It's the next generation. You don't have this kind of movement. You don't have this kind of ministry. But guess what happens? This guy Apollos shows up. And Apollos has got every gift in the book except one. He doesn't know Jesus has already come, which is a pretty big thing to miss. Okay? So he's got everything except the most important news. And he needs somebody to shepherd him. And who's there to shepherd him? This couple. Now you say, oh, this is great, this is great for Apollos, but I want to show you how this blessed the church in Corinth. I want to show this to you. You don't have this kind of movement. You don't have the type of blessing that Corinth needs. Right? Let me show this to you. Verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia. Where's Achaia? Corinth. That's the region where Corinth is. So he wants to go to Corinth. The brothers encouraged him. You should go. Yes, you should go. We'll tell you why in a second here. And he wrote to the disciples to welcome him. They send letters, man. You take this guy, Apollos. This is the real deal. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, what, why is this a big deal? I'll tell you why this is a big deal. Corinth is a city steeped in Greek teaching that valued eloquent speakers. Right? Part of the sports in Corinth was... Men would just stand up and speak extemporaneously on whatever topic. People would toss them out, and they would just speak. And then people would throw money at them if they thought it was good. They valued public speaking. They had, a big, they had a big podium in the center of Corinth. And anyone could just stand up in that podium and start speaking. And people would gather, and if they liked what they said, they would throw money at the guy. It's, that's how much they valued public speaking. They valued Greek literature. In there was a group of strong Jewish leaders who were opposed to the gospel that were attacking the church. The church in Corinth needed Apollos, a man raised in Greek literature, a man raised with eloquence and skill, and a man who had the theological backdrop and knowledge to be able to point to Jesus as the Messiah. But he needed some training but that training wasn't going to come in Corinth. The training had to come in Ephesus because that's where he was moving to. And so God's moving the right people in the right spot so that mission would continue, so that Corinth would be blessed, way more blessed than if Paul and Priscilla and Aquila had stayed because Paul himself even says, I'm not one of those, I'm not one of you guys. I don't speak like you guys. Even in his own letter when he writes to them, man, I stood up there afraid. I'm not the eloquent guy, but Apollos was. God knew exactly what that church needed, knew exactly what that town needed, knew exactly what was there, 
And he's moving the pieces around to get what that church needed. That's why mission requires movement and movement requires multiplication. Now it's going on. And you know what's really cool, what I think is cool, is that this is all second generation work. And this church that Paul right now has only spent a short time in, just doing some early preaching, and then he took off, has been established by Priscilla and Aquila, and now guess what we're seeing? Second generation missionaries being sent. Ephesus is sending a missionary to Corinth. And this missionary never met Paul. Isn't that cool? Never met him. All done by people that Paul had passed the baton to. He passed the baton to them. They passed the baton to Apollos. And now we've got multiplication going. That's the mission. I love it. He has everything that's needed. So let's wrap this up. What do we see here? Mission requires movement. Why? Because God says, I want the nations to hear. Right? I want this to go out to the edges. Calling people from every tribe and tongue. This is what this is about. But if you're going to have movement, you've got to have multiplication. You need people who are, who are going to take the work and continue the work. And God is moving people in different places. And if he's moving one person from here to here, he's moving someone else from there back to that spot again. And this stuff's just going on and on and on. Because... Movement requires multiplication. So when I finished this sermon, I sat at my desk yesterday, and I was thinking, how do you, what do you do with this? Right? I mean, I, here's the spot. We could just close in prayer, be done with it. But I wrote down a couple of thoughts, and, and basically four what I would call four points that just struck me. And I just wanted to share these points. They're, they're not necessarily like life application verses here. But they're just things that, that, that struck me that, that I want to share with you. And, and, and so there's four points that struck me, and there's three points that encouraged me. So I'm going to give you four points that struck me, three points that encouraged me, and it won't take an hour, don't worry. Okay? But let me give you the four points that struck me. The first thing that struck me was this. This is the norm. That's the point. Everything we just saw here in Acts 18 was the norm for the church. This is what the church in the first century looked like. A lot of people, when they think they want to go back to the church in the first century, they maybe just want to go back to one verse. Oh, you know, everybody had all things in common, and they, get, and they want to just maybe take one passage or one verse. But really, the norm of the church was, was mission, Christ being made known to people who didn't know, movement, God moving people so that this would happen, and multiplication, God raising up people and people taking places and batons being passed. This was just the norm. That was the norm of the church. Second point that struck me. This is where the right kind of growth comes from. This is where true growth emerges. What do I mean by this? Sometimes when we think of church growth, we think of it only in terms of our own church. Do we have more people next year, you know, at the end of this year than we had at the beginning of the year? Oh, then we had church growth. But what would happen if we thought about church growth from the standpoint of people who don't know Christ, who have heard the good news that he has redeemed them, removed their shame, removed their guilt, removed their sin, and they have a seat at the table of the kingdom of God. What happens if we looked at church growth that way? And we started saying, man, let's not just look at church growth by whether or not we have more people leaving churches in Illinois to come to our church, that we could end up thinking more about how many people in DeKalb that have never heard Christ 
can have their shame removed, or in India, or in Canada, or in the Czech Republic. And this is the type of church growth that I think is in God's heart and mind. It's the right kind of growth when you have that kind of commitment. Third thing that struck me, this is where blessing, real, real true blessing comes from. What do I mean by that? This is what God wants. This is, how he, this is, this is what God wants, which means it's what God blesses. This is how the ministry is played out in the whole Bible. And so, therefore, if you're doing it, you're in blessing. Fourthly, this is the point of our vapor. We have this short time on this earth. It's very short, and it goes fast. But the point of the vapor is to participate in the work of God, letting everyone know that, that Christ has made a way for them to be saved, to have their shame removed, to have their guilt removed. They have a seat at the table. Therefore, my three words of encouragement. First one, take comfort. Take comfort. God is a good shepherd. If there's mission, movement, and multiplication, and all, there's pro- and all there are problems that come from that, take comfort that God has solved those problems. He has solved them. We don't have to worry here, even though we've got some movement going on. We don't have to worry You can take comfort. You can rest. You don't have to say, what's going to happen? Are we going to have this? Are we going to have that? You don't have to worry. If God is in charge of movement, he's in charge of all movement everywhere. He's not only in charge of the people who are moving from here, he's also in charge of the people who are moving to here. Take comfort. Third, second word of encouragement, take heart. Why is that? If this is the point of, of existence... Then take heart, man. Take heart. It's like, okay, this is good then. Mission and movement and multiplication is good, which gives me my third word of encouragement. Enjoy the ride. Man, what a great way to spend our vapor and all this craziness. <laughs> it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But I will tell you this. When I last year was with Frank Drown, and, uh, you know, and he's in his 90s, and, of course, missionary who helped us get going and been a missionary in Ecuador and helped us with uh, the missionary mission in Canada. And now that he has Alzheimer's kicking in, and it was pretty bad, the Alzheimer's. But yet, you know what's amazing about this? What was coming out of him was his love for the mission, his love for the gospel. I mean, when, when, when his brain is degenerating, he still can't stop talking about this. And he still can't stop talking about people hearing about Jesus. And I'm thinking, man, when I'm losing it, that's how I want to lose it. Right? I know I'm going to lose it. That's how I want to lose it. I don't want to be the angry, bitter guy in the basement. You know? My kid's going, oh, don't go down there. Dad's in one of those moods. Right? I don't want to be that guy. I want to be that guy that's just coming out, man. I'm just talking about people getting saved and, you know, and, 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 and talking about the kingdom and talking about the love of Christ and, and, and giving people missionary, you know, he's given Ron and, and Matt missionary advice. He kept saying it over and over again because of the Alzheimer's, but that's what he kept doing. And I'm thinking, that's what I want leaking out of me, man. So let's just enjoy the ride because life in the kingdom is more fulfilling than life bucking the kingdom. So those are my three words of encouragement. All right, I'm done. So let's pray. Okay. Thank you, God, for this passage. I thank you for Acts. I thank you for how it ministers to us and teaches us. And I thank you for the stuff we're able to observe in the life of Paul and the ministry there. I thank you as the generation started 
taking shape and ministry started happening. God, let that be true of us, Lord. Let us just see this kind of stuff happen. Let us be committed to the type of growth that you love, the, the growth of people hearing that they have a seat at the table. God, fill us with that love. Use us, God. Thank you that we have a seat at your table. Thank you that, that we don't have to worry about our past. We don't have to worry about our parents. We don't have to worry about our problems. We don't have to worry about the things that we have committed, that all things are new in you, that we can be reconciled to you through the blood of Jesus, and that we can have guilt and shame removed, and we can be brand new and living out a purpose that could fill us with joy. God, Put us on that ride and let us enjoy it. And Lord, just thank you for the glorious truth of what we see in the Gospels and what we see in, in Acts. And Lord, I just pray that's true of us. Fill us with the hope that comes from living on mission for you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.